Hello and welcome to the Professional Horror Podcast, the one podcast you can't overlook. I am your host, Chris Donovan, and my guest this week is my good friend, Megan Pendergast. How are you doing, Megan? I'm doing well. How are you, Chris? I'm doing just fine. I just want to apologize to you guys. I have We haven't had an episode since Halloween time because I've gotten sick twice, and it's hard to schedule people around the holidays, but we're back this time. It's you know still the winter time, so it hasn't been five months like last year. This is our first episode over the interweb, so ooh, we're, getting, we're moving up in the world. High tech. Mm-hmm. Because Megan's coming to us all the way from like, I don't know, some Connecticut places. Yep. And I'm in the Rhode right. Island places. And yeah, I wanted to do a Christmas episode where I did Black Christmas and I sang Christmas carols for you guys. But now you don't get to hear my Christmas carols. So Maybe next year. So since we have a new guest on the show, like we do whenever we have a new guest, we start off with a section called First Blood, where we get to know our guests. We know what what lens we watch horror movies from. We're going to ask for your favorite horror movie, Megan, and your favorite sub-genre of horror movie. And just so everyone knows, even if if this is your first episode, I'll throw mine out really quick. My favorite horror movie of all time is A Nightmare on Elm Street, the 1984 Wes Craven film. And my favorite sub-genre are slashers and creature features. Nice. So Megan, I've... whichever one you want to start with, go right ahead. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to cheat on both of them. So that <laughs> Womp. Because I, I was thinking about this. And I'm like, oh, how could I possibly pick? So then I'm like, oh, good news. I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, and I guess I can go back and forth from subgenre to favorite movie. The plural. Yep. <laughs> but the subgenre is I really like psychological horror mm-hmm. in something like Silence of the Lambs, yeah, and right. which is one of my all-time favorite horror movies. But then I also really like I don't know if you I guess kind of like satirical horror, like the recent movie Get Out, even like the Alien franchise or like uh, Cabin in the Woods. Like <sighs> Cabin in the Woods and Alien fr- aren't aren't like my top three, but they're like they're definitely like top ten. And then also the thing, the thing. Oh. the thing is the one movie like i will always try to convince people to watch horror movies the thing is the one where i'm like only when you're ready Mm -hmm. when you're ready because the effects in that movie are horrifying there it's a and it's like such a i just see i'm almost rendered stupid by my (laughs) long to explain explain myself but the thing is so good because and i really appreciate actually i think I think all the movies I said, they there's no like romantic bullshit. There's mm-hmm. no stupid storyline where people are dying all around each other and yet still like these two like unrealistically good looking people are making eyes at each other and like wasting precious screen time, like banging in the woods or whatever, and then like oh, and then they then they they're the only ones who survive, even though by all logic they should be the ones who die because they're the ones who keep getting distracted. And in yep. the thing, there's not even any women. Yeah. It's all men. And also you never even at the end there's still remaining questions you don't know exactly who's infected sometimes people die and you're not like you just and then you don't know how long people were infected Mm. that that movie's a triumph in the sense that it really builds dread and atmosphere and it also somehow makes you care about the characters even though they're dropping very Mm. quickly which i think is masterful similarly i love silence of the lambs because honestly who doesn't that's one of the few films that's been nominated for best actor best actress best screenplay best director and best film it's yeah i think it's the only horror movie to ever be nominated for best picture i forget if it won i think it did 
I think it did. I think it won all five, won all five of those. Yeah. It's the only okay. horror movie. Like, horror movies have gotten nominated for some awards. Like, uh, Kathy Bates and Misery got nominated, which, of yeah, course, that amazing. was incredible. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's the only movie. Performance was great. I love that movie so much. Mm-hmm. But I think Silence of the Lambs is the only one to be to ever win Best Picture that's NBA quote-unquote horror movie. I think you're right. I think that checks out. I can fact check it later, but I think you're definitely right. Yeah. And I think that also is interesting because that it's mostly from a female perspective, but they mm-hmm. don't go the cliched route. Again, she doesn't have a love interest later in the books and in the inferior sequels. They mm-hmm. kind of try to, you know, force a kind of love connection with her and Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. But in that movie and in the first book, it's just... It's just essentially like the cat and mouse game the, mm-hmm. and the psychological horror of what Buffalo Bill is doing. And then also from the perspective of a young FBI agent, not only trying to come into her own as an agent, but also to be taken seriously as a woman. And also these women who are literally being dismembered and taken apart so that the serial killer can take their femaleness. So it's the, the completely different take on femininity and women in the sense that their power is constantly being trying to be taken from them. And especially to be have been written by Thomas Harris. I think that was a real triumph for the mm-hmm. time as well. Like at the time he wrote that, it was not a popular storyline talking about the Hannibal sequels I feel like it's not a surprise the only other one that I think is any good is Red Dragon which also kind of drops yeah. that and it's just another cat and mouse game yeah. but from a different angle where it's like Hannibal's not trying to get into the mind of the detective he's trying to like mess with him yeah he, he just uh, like he's bored behind bars essentially yeah. and he wants so to I would, his life. I would definitely agree. you know what's What's funny, too, is you said you wouldn't say in your top three. My mm-hmm. top three favorite movies of all time are Aliens, Nightmare on Elm Street, Cabin in the Woods. No way! They're definitely top ten, because I could talk forever, so I won't. <laughs> but, like, Alien and Aliens, I think, are just such a fascinating example mm. of two... Like, Alien is obviously just the few crew, the alien, the mystery, the robot, and all that sort of thing, and the atmospheric, and then it's like, and then there was one, the countdown, everything. It's so isolating, and they just do an excellent job of that. And then Aliens is horror as well but it's essentially an action film with a much bigger budget with a much bigger cast i mean towards yeah. the end obviously not many survive but it's, they, it was two completely different takes in the same universe and that was fascinating oh yeah that's why i don't put aliens whenever i say my favorite horror movie i don't say aliens because mm-hmm. i feel it's a sci-fi action movie mm-hmm. first with horror elements as opposed to a straight up horror movie like elm street but I yeah. think it's just, that is so fascinating because Alien is like the pinnacle of like suspense horror. It's such a beautifully like crafted, like horror thriller type. And then you have one where it's just, they just, you know, crank the action up to a hundred in Aliens. And it it's is. just, it's, it's the most, it's also like the most quotable movie, I think, of all time. It's oh, yeah. so fun. Game over, man. Game over, man. <laughs> Randomly, one of my favorite scenes in that movie is towards the end when Ripley is going down the elevator mm-hmm. to get new. And then I think that's just such a good moment of acting too because she's like leaning against it and she's arming herself but she's also like mentally arming herself usually movies skip over that stuff like the but it was very humanizing to see the main character you can just see that like the severity of the situation is kind of coming down around her and she's being practical and she knows what she has to do but the chances of survival are really low and it's just Mm, actually think to see a character actually internalizing all of that yeah, I actually think, to go back to our earlier conversation, I think Aliens is one of the, uh, Sigourney Weaver is one of the other characters in a horror-type movie to be nominated for an award. I don't think she won an Oscar, but I do think she was nominated for Best Actress. Nominated. I think she was nominated for Aliens, I think. And I also want to touch really quick on, you talking about you don't like horror movies with, you know, the romance crap where they're, like, making mm-hmm. googly eyes. I remember there was a Stephen King tweet, which we're going to talk a lot about Stephen King in the, last, in the next two episodes we do. <laughs> 
but there's a tweet he had where he was like, I have found that the best stories I have come across involve friendships being tested. Mm -hmm. And I've realized in the past like few years that it's so true. The movies that I really like latch onto now, Mm -hmm. the B story, the emotional B stories aren't romance because most of them are just so interchangeable. Oh. But mo- but the ones that really like latch on for me are the ones where it's like a family dynamic or a friend dynamic. I agree. Uh, like I fire like, force friends. Like the final girls, which came out a few years ago, I adore to pieces. It's a mother daughter. Oh, I saw I, that. I really liked it. I really like that. The monster, which came out in like 2016, it's another mother daughter relationship. The ritual, which came out last Friday on Netflix. You know, dating ourselves here, but it came, <laughs> out, la- it came out last Friday. It's about four male friends and their dynamic. There's a woman, but it's like at the very end, and it's, it's complicated it's not a romance though mm-hmm. it's just about the friendship and that's that movie was really good too i really enjoyed that it's like, like those yeah because all the romance stories there's no nuance to a horror movie romance Mm-mm. it's just almost always first love you know at the end they kiss mm-hmm. we met we went through some stuff and mm-hmm. now we kissed and it's going to be happily ever after and it's like okay that's great. great whereas when you get family and friends mm-hmm. it always has to dig a little bit deeper into a yep. more different story than you've seen before yep and they don't have to rest they're not they're not resting on like the attractiveness laurels like the right oh like someone's like changing their shirt and like oh the charged looks and like the soft music and like yep. boy, it's just like so played out and yep. then give aliens i think a pretty good understated i don't even know if i call it a romance because it doesn't go anywhere mm-hmm. is between her and um her and dwight i think his name is dwight right What's it, is that his I, real name? Dwayne. Oh, Dwayne what? Hicks. Dwayne, Dwayne Hicks. Dwayne Hicks. Dwayne or Dwayne. Okay, Hicks. Yeah. With her, her and Hicks, I think that's good because you can like tell that there's something under there. But realistically, there's a lot bigger problems than yeah. like getting in each other's pants. So it gets that, tabled totally. Yeah, that's one of the most understated romantic subplots. It was just so understated mm-hmm. that when I watched it as a kid, and I watched the VHS of Aliens like a hundred times as a kid. Mm-hmm. It's one of the fir- it's one of the three movies I remember like watching when I was like five years old. It was like the first mm-hmm. wave of a adult movies i saw like after like barney and stuff the first movies i remember watching are halloween mm-hmm. and the first two alien movies the first hundred times i saw aliens i didn't even pick up on it mm-hmm. which granted i was a little kid but at the same time for the first hour it's just they occasionally have two shots back to back where they look at each other yeah and then they have the you know it doesn't mean we're married or anything with the uh tracker yeah yeah and he teaches her how to shoot and that's it it's, it's so understated you can clearly see that connection that they have and i just i love that movie to pieces it's no so me too bad. i think it's very well done anywho let's get to the subject <laughs> hand. we're really good at getting off track oh man this is <laughs> like no one's here to reel us in at this point <laughs> No, if Nicole was here, she would have sprayed us with water bottles by now. Yep. She'd have been like, okay, <laughs> so someone's story. Like, uh Anywho, so this episode, we're going to be talking about The Shining, the 1980 Stanley Kubrick, or Kubrick, however you want to pronounce it. I don't know how to pronounce it. I've never known. Film that a lot of people, I know I see The Shining on a lot of lists of the greatest horror movies ever made. I know it's nowhere near Stephen King's top horror movie ever made. <laughs> We'll talk to that because we're going to talk about the movie this episode and, you know, we're going to have a little bonus thing afterwards where we talk about the book and the connections there therein. So The Shining, for some background, has 8.4 out of 10 rating on IMDb. Pretty good. And pretty decent. 63% on Metacritic and 87% approval on Rotten Tomatoes. Nice. The, the Rotten Tomatoes consensus is... 
Though it deviates from Stephen King's novel, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is a chilling, often baroque journey into madness, exemplified by an unforgettable turn from Jack Nicholson. It's unforgettable for sure. <laughs> yeah. One thing I do want to talk about is, have you seen the, some of the other names thrown around to play Jack Torrance? Yes. Oh, they're, some of them are fun. Yeah, I think I think the, one of the major ones is John Lithgow. Yeah, John Lithgow was talked about. I think Robert saw, De Niro, but, then, but I'm not 100%. I think Robert De Niro maybe too. Yeah, I heard De Niro. The two most interesting that I heard was Christopher Reeves, who is mm-hmm. Superman. I could 1,000% see Stephen King for how his interpretation of Jack Torrance is, how mm-hmm. Christopher Reeves fits that mold. Because mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson going crazy, that's, you know, pick any he of his movies. He was going crazy when it started. Yeah, pick any of his movies. You're probably going to find it. Mm-hmm. But Superman going crazy? Now that's a different ballpark. And the other one that I really loved is Robin Williams. Oh, yeah. I heard about that. Yeah. Kubrick thought De Niro was not psychotic enough for the role. And he thought that Robin Williams was too psychotic. (laughs) Given the fact that that Robert De Niro just came off Taxi Driver, pretty amazing. (laughs) Yeah. He thought he wasn't psychotic enough after watching Taxi Driver. I know, exactly. That's the crazy part. Like, that's nuts. And Robert and Robin Williams was only known for comedy, I think, at that point, like Mork and Mindy and his stand-up routine. They also briefly considered Harrison Ford for Jack Torrance, which also I could see that fitting. Makes sense. What Stephen King from, would want. From a Stephen King's perspective. Yeah. He wanted like an ordinary man yes, he descending wanted an, to madness. Every he, man. he didn't want a crazy man getting crazier. Yeah, he wanted an every man who was clearly being turned crazy by the spirits in the Overlook Hotel and alcoholism, not mm-hmm. someone like Jack Nicholson who was clearly crazy from Jump Street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Which I, that, I can see. Yeah, absolutely. But it's just um, the book and the movies just have completely different merits. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's yeah. like, I could totally see that. And I would love to watch a version of The Shining with Christopher Reeves or Robin Williams or Harrison Ford in the lead, but I'm not sure I could trade it for Jack Nicholson's. No. It's so good. So I was just reading an article that they were talking about how um, creator backlash thing, how J- both Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall were frustrated with how much um, credit Stanley Kubrick got for the creation of the mm-hmm. movie and then not, not enough to, on their performances. And Jack Nicholson especially said of Shelley Duvall that she did one of, she played one of the most difficult roles he's ever seen an actor play. And he felt that she was completely underrated, which as I get older, I actually, I agree with when I was younger, she's just so strange seeming mm-hmm. and also so mousy that you're kind of like off put, but she's a classic battered wife. Yeah. She's also it's, one of those, yeah. it's one of those things where it's like, I do have a lot of respect for Shelley Duvall because of, you don't have to read too far into the background of the film to know that she was like tortured on the set oh, of that he, film. He tortured her. She said that she wouldn't trade the experience for the world but she would never do it again Mm-mm. because of like the trauma and the isolation that she was put through because mm-hmm. Stanley Kubrick not only treated her like garbage but also in- insisted that people like leave her alone in between takes and mm-hmm. like not try and comfort her or anything to get the most out of her in that role but one of the things I do think about the movie is watching Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall I don't see how they ever would have been together in the first place that's a big mm-hmm. thing for me where they seem like it does seem like they were cast to be husband and wife and that their characters would never 
become husband and wife. I could see it only from the perspective of Stephen King's novel. Mm-hmm. I completely agree because they're like an all-American couple. They're, I think they're they're in their early 30s in the book. Mm-hmm. She's blonde. I think she, I'm pretty sure she used to be a cheerleader. She's actually like a pretty stereotypical, beautiful kind of housewife. Mm-hmm. And then he's also like handsome, kind of gruff, young, also all-American. But for the movie, they did an interesting take, which is that they're both a lot older, much mm-hmm. older. I think it's intentional. The entire thing is so off-putting. Mm-hmm. They're much older, and they have a young son, which is the opposite of what Hollywood usually does. Usually it takes a book with, like, not good-looking people and then makes them unrealistically good-looking instead yep. of taking a book with good-looking people and making them a lot gruffer-looking or and also mm-hmm. aging them up. Like, that was a pretty bold move. It's not, like, a normal move. Again, usually people age them down or they make them more attractive, not less. And just the way that Jack Nicholson's character, well, the way that Jack treats Wendy and the way that Wendy is so she's so frazzled she's constantly smoking she's constantly shaking mm-hmm. she really it's clear she really only she's focusing all her energy on her son i think it's very clear that she's been emotionally and psychologically tormented by jack for a very long time and it's right. not the hotel that made it happen it's their no, marriage it was jack and Nelson they, and their marriage. i mean again i'm completely guessing and this is they would probably know when he put this thought into it but from like the perspective of an abusive marriage i could see them of being long being together for a long time and the power struggle that happens between a couple in in that that sort of extremist and then the fact that they have a young kid so old seems also like a power struggle maybe on jack's part like she's gonna leave she gets mm -hmm. pregnant yeah i could that's the only thing i could see about them being together it's that they were different people when they were younger Mm -hmm. and like in the book how the alcoholism kind of drove jack to a bad place and then Mm -hmm. he had to pull himself back because he lost most of his opportunities i could see that that mm-hmm. already happened before they had Danny, and that was sort of like a well, we're gonna separate. Uh, but what if we have a kid? We need to stay together, kind mm-hmm. of thing. People do that uh, in real life. It's, it's, it's true. sad, but it's uh, it's, it's a, true. It is true. And, and I think that that's theory. really um. But you're right. They're like they're not a couple that makes sense on paper, and it's not at no point in the movie you're like oh, like, that's why they're together. In the book, he shows her a lot more respect until he starts mentally deteriorating, and then he starts lashing out. In the movie. He's snapping at her and like subjugating her the entire time. In the book, it's, really, it's it yeah. feels more like a Stephen King Tab of the King relationship where she's mm-hmm. even like reviewing like what he writes and stuff. Um, it feels more natural. And in the miniseries, they're played by Stephen Weber and Rebecca De Mornay. Who Rebecca oh, De Mornay is interesting. She's gorgeous in that oh, movie. She's she's beautiful woman. She's beautiful, yeah. So like, there's a scene where the separation between the two of them is more jarring in the miniseries, and that's that's one of the biggest comments I can give the miniseries. <laughs> because there's a scene where like (laughs) yeah there's a scene where wendy in the miniseries is like is that why you won't make love to me or whatever and it's like in the movie those two probably weren't doing anything together Mm -hmm. but in the miniseries you're like steven that's rebecca de mornay right there what are you doing Why aren't you on that all the time? I don't know. She's like throwing herself at you. What are you doing? So it's one of the big differences between the movie and the bubble. So the movie starts out with Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, of course, Mm -hmm. arriving at the Overlook Hotel. Nice long driving scene. You know, we get to see some gorgeous Colorado landscapes. I don't even think it was Colorado, actually. Could be wrong, though. It was St. Mary Lake next to Wild Goose Island in the opening scene. Where that is, don't know. It doesn't tell me where it is. <laughs> it's just a picture on Wikipedia, folks. We're all human here. I'm Googling it right uh, now. And <laughs> that's where he meets Ullman, which another big difference from the book is Ullman is like the nicest dude. 
he's just like really cool with Jack Nichols with Jack Torrance. I'm gonna keep saying them messed up all the time. That's fine. They're both Jacks. They're both Jacks. Where he's just like, you know, calling it like it is. He's like, eh, you know, you'll be fine to run the Overlook Hotel. Don't worry about it. By the way, some people got hacked up here. Hope you don't mind. Mm-hmm. And it's another, totally different in the book. What I think is weird, too, is there's a scene, too, where Jack says to, to Ullman, he's like, oh, my wife won't have a problem with that because she's a confirmed ghost story and horror movie addict. And mm-hmm. that never gets brought up ever she's mm-hmm. never watching anything horror or reading anything horror mm-hmm. it almost seems like jack's not even thinking about his wife he's just saying things to make all to make this job yeah because that's the thing about you know me as far as me watching movies if she was a confirmed ghost story and horror movie addict i would like her a lot more as a character i'm not a complicated <laughs> man <laughs> Yeah, but this is what we we learn is that Jack has to do some, he has to take care of the hotel, yada yada yada, keep it warm. It's built on a Native American burial ground, of course, and it naturally, naturally. And uh, we learn about, yeah, and we learn about Charles Grady, who this is the first time we hear Charles Grady. Which, strangely enough, when he later on in the movie, he becomes Delbert Grady. I think it's in that way in the book too, isn't it? Um, I think it's always Delbert, but I could be wrong. I think that it's uh in the movie, it's he clearly says Charles Grady, and then he's. Delbert later on where Charles Grady basically got cabin fever and killed his wife and two kids eight and ten years old with an axe and then shot himself with a shotgun and he's he's like all right hope you don't mind that that happened to this hotel and Jack's like I mean I, I guess I kind of need this job so yeah <laughs> That's kind of a last-ditch effort for Jack Boy yeah. over there. One thing, in the book, we really go through what Jack is writing. In the movie, he's very ambiguously writing. He's just working on a project. We don't get a lot of information nope. from him on that. Mm-mm. So they drive up. He gets the job, but Danny already knows that because he's got The Shining, which... For those who don't know, which if you've gotten this far and you don't know anything about The Shining, kudos. Thank you. I appreciate you as a person. The Shining is a telepathic power where you can communicate with other people with The Shining. You can read thoughts. You can know the future. It's basically, it kind of does whatever the plot demands, basically. Yep, essentially. I like the term The Shining because it it makes sense in the sense that like they're just, these people are just kind of glowing. Hmm. So when Danny meets Dick, it makes sense they'd identify each other because they can like identify that and see what yeah it's kind of like the whole concept of like auras or whatever where that person has a brighter aura because they're shining exactly it's like figurative but also literal which i like when things like that and i think i also mentioned a wife's tale where if a baby's born with a call on their face which is like that gross milky white thing they'll essentially be more in tune that they're like they'll have like prophetic powers so then the idea is that they do actually explicitly say that danny was born with that yeah there's the idea that it's tied to that in the book the shining and also much deeperly explained in the sequel book dr sleep basically like you get the shining with like a clout thing on your face if you're born with it and it also mm-hmm. is mildly hereditary mm-hmm. there's a film theory which film theory is really great i enjoy film theory that all the kids in it have the shining he theorizes that mm-hmm. you develop the shining as sort of like a response to abuse i guess as like a, yeah, as like a defense mechanism mm-hmm. which 
that makes sense because I do think all the ki- most of the kids in it, most of the Losers Club, feel like they do have the shining, particularly in the book, mm-hmm. or at least some level of shine to them. Weirdly but, enough, the one I would say probably has the most is Stan. St- yeah, maybe Stan has. Yeah, because he's he's the spoiled. only one who the only one who left and remembers. Yeah, and he's the only one who um yeah who makes reference to his time as a kid. The rest of them forgot yeah. except for Mike. Spoiler alert: if, if you've only seen chapter one of it and not the miniseries or the book, Stan he remembers stuff from their childhood. And isn't exactly keen to return to Derry. Let's just say that. Nope, not keen. Not keen. Not keen at all. Yeah, I do think they all have a level of shine to them, but it's unfortunately, I don't think that theory stands up as far as developing it as a result of abuse, even though Danny and Dick were both abused. Yep, they were. So, but then again, so was Jack, but also in the sequel, Dr. Sleep, maybe Jack has the shine. I don't know. It's complicated. Well, it could be like anything else where people might have a natural talent but if they don't hone it they're not going to develop it maybe if you're predisposed towards something and you never take the time to mm-hmm. like sharpen it then you might have that natural ability but if you're not using it it's not going to get used yeah but what we learn through dick halloran the, the chef of the overlook hotel is that not only is danny torrance we don't actually get this much in the movie but he shines like more than most people do when i rewatched the movie the other day i was surprised that it, it wasn't stated fully that the reason why the stuff is happening at the overlook is because Danny shines more than most people. And mm-hmm. actually the movie takes a whole different direction in regards to what why the hotel does what it does. It feels more like they're after Jack in the movie and they're very clearly after Danny in the book. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah, it's just the, the movie t- takes a completely different approach. Which I understand from the standpoint of there aren't a lot of five-year-olds capable of acting to that ex- to the extent where they can carry a movie. Nope. Granted, that's why I think there could be some merit to remaking The Shining now because. I don't know where we found all these kid actors who are fantastic, but we found them. So let's use them. <laughs> it has like eight good child actors. Yeah, they, I don't know the where kid, they pulled them out. All of the kid actors in it, I think are good at least. And mm-hmm. some of them are great. Like if you remade The Shining with uh, the kid who played Georgie as Danny, like sign me up. That sounds great. Oh yeah. That'd be great. That would be great. Yeah. So you're going to be excited for the hypothetical project. <laughs> The kid who plays and, the kid who plays Georgie is going to be in the pilot of Lock and Key, which is a Joe Hill production. Joe Hill is Stephen King's cool. son, and I went to his book signing of Joe Hill, and he talked about having like three kids from it in his pilot. And one of the funniest things he said is he's trying to work in a scene where like the, the kid who plays Georgie is like bugging his older brother. It's like, can we get ice cream? And he's like, yeah, fine, we'll get a, like a root beer float. And then he, the kid's gonna be like, yeah, float, 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 float. <laughs> I was like, you're the best, Joe. That would be very funny. I like how Joe Hill and Stephen King like like are self-referential mm-hmm. amongst each other. I think that's really cute. Yeah, that's really fun. I really enjoy their like back and forth stuff. Me too. Anyway, I haven't even One got thing to that. I have to say for the directors and producers who are definitely listening. Oh yeah. <laughs> is whoever made The Shining, please make it in the seventies, make it nineteen or early eighties. Don't make it now. Don't make it now. Because guess what? Especially if you're going to be on, if if you're going to be authentic to the book. The only reason that Wendy stays with Jack is because one, divorce is frowned upon. Two, she doesn't have a job. Mm. And three, she doesn't have a college degree, which she could still have a college degree in this day and age. But the reason she didn't get a college degree is because she met Jack and got married, which is what women did back then. Yeah. More often than not. Not all of them. But. So this is, this is something that works in terms of character. If you want to stay authentic to the book, it works as a period piece because that's a, thank God it's a bygone era, but it's a bygone era. <laughs> 
a woman biding her time, leaving her husband because she literally can't support herself. It's mm-hmm. like, again, that could happen now, but then you would have to make either Wendy more docile or less ambitious, or you'd have to make Jack more overbearing, like closer yeah. to, the, to the 1980 movie version. Right. And Mike Flanagan, who's a director that I really, really love. I think he's done a lot of really great work with like Hush, Oculus, Gerald's Game. I- I like, yeah, I really like to take on Gerald's game, and I really like Tosh. Mm, I think he's fantastic. He's going to be adapting Doctor Sleep, the sequel to The Shining. So it makes sense if The Shining remake were to come out, takes place in the '80s, so that this one can take place in the current age. Because if you're going to remake The Shining and make it in current day, and then adapt, Wait, obviously it's going to take place in like 2045. Which who knows what's going to happen there? Who knows? If we're even going to make it to that point? God, I hope so. <sighs> I hope so. <laughs> Anywho, so let's go. We're going to stay on target. We're going to talk about the movie at some point. <laughs> I think we talked about it some. We've talked about it some, but I'm, I, I try, I'm trying to go through the, like event by event, and event by event, oh we're God, still God, at sorry. Jack and uh, Danny's crazy premonition where the doctor has to show up. So Danny sees some mm-hmm. crazy stuff. He sees blood coming out of an elevator door. He sees two girls who, despite what everyone says, are not twins. They're not their sisters. They're yep. Yeah, they're eight and ten years old, as stated by Ullman. We learn about yeah, Danny. Danny's premonitions. We learn about his friend Tony, who lives in his mouth. Apparently, the, uh, the finger and the voice he did himself. Danny Lloyd. It's did. Cool. Yeah, it's pretty good. I would have thought that, you know, maybe they brought someone in, but no, that, that's one of the most fascinating things to me about this movie is apparently Danny Lloyd did not know it was a horror movie when he filmed it. Nope, he didn't. He Which, didn't even know he was a teenager. It makes me wonder how, after watching it, there's a few scenes where I'm like, he probably should have known someone was up. Maybe he just wasn't like the sharpest knife when he was five. I could see that they treated him like it was a family drama. Yeah. He, most, of the, most of the stuff he was in, like what was like intense scenes with his parents, mm-hmm. or it was like him reacting to things. And then after he has like bruises on his neck, but he doesn't actually get strangled in the scene. Right. He just gets, one of those he goes scenes. in and then he like, so we get he's reacting to things, but he didn't really have any any of the supernatural stuff happen directly which to him. Where think, he would have had to act it out. Which I do think is one of the reasons why the movie and the book are so different is because of that reluctance to use the actor Danny Lloyd in any of those intensive scenes. Mm-hmm. Like in the book, any of the mini, like the one shining moment of the miniseries is the scene in Room Two One Seven with mm-hmm. Danny, and it's a shining moment in the book too because that's the first time they go from being just like pictures in a book to something more. Mm-hmm. But in the movie, since they didn't want to do that to Danny Lloyd we get a different thing which is also freaky which we'll get to but it's just it makes it changes the whole dynamic of the movie for sure so and we also learn in that scene with wendy talking to the doctor about jack dislocating danny's shoulder after a drunken binge i think it's a great scene for shelly duvall because she's saying it very calmly and almost like it's not a big deal but you can just see like the cigarette just like burning away and it's just a giant mm-hmm. thing of ash on on the end and she's like it's clearly like making her super anxious she's not okay with this mm-hmm. but it's just like she's kind of no. stuck yeah that was a she great is. scene from there we go pretty much right to them going arriving on the hotel one of the weird things about the movie is they always have these title cards of like later that day or next month and tuesday and there's no real anchor to any of those moments really mm-hmm. Like, it'll just say, like, Tuesday. And it's like, okay, what Tuesday? Tuesday, question? They're there the whole winter. There's going to be a lot of Tuesdays. Which one? Yeah. So when they arrive, they finally meet the chef, Dick Halloran, who offers Danny ice cream telepathically, which that's always, that's fun. 
It's it's very different. <laughs> Telepathically or otherwise. Yeah, it's very different in the book where he's just like, hey, help me load my car while I tell you about The Shining. Which was actually kind of creepy if you think about it. <laughs> it is. It's kind of creepy. But in that those scenes in the movie, I mean, the book, the miniseries, Dick offers a lot more valuable information to Danny. Mm-hmm. In the movie, he, he just says, like, The Shining exists and you've got it. This place is creepy. Later. That's actually one of the things about the movie that I'm not crazy about is the interpretation of the Dick character. I especially I mean, Scatman we'll, Crothers we'll get, in that we'll get role. there, but I don't know. They changed his fate mm-hmm. oh, it's needlessly. So, it's it's almost comical what they do to him. It is. Having built up as like coming to help them. I mean, he brings a vehicle, so he does ultimately help. But it's just like I don't know. It's just he's foolish, I think. He just and becomes groundskeeper he's a Willie. Char- he's, a wa- he's a really good character, and he's wasted. He just becomes groundskeeper Willie from The Shining. Which, by the way, you want to talk about adaptations of The Shining? The best one is The Shining. Let's get let's get real, folks. That's the best adaptation. <laughs> But I know I totally agree. I feel like that was a huge wasted opportunity. Hmm. In the ice cream scene, it's just basically Danny saying, I mean, Dick saying, we have telepathic powers, both of us. It's called The Shining. And get Danny, used to it. Yeah, get used to it. And Danny presses him saying, hey, is there something to be afraid of in this hotel? And he's, what about room 237? And Dick's like, there ain't nothing in room 237. But he also tells him directly after that to stay away from 237. Mm-hmm. Which, fun fact, in the book and the miniseries, it's from 217. But the reason it's 237, apparently, in the movie is the hotel that they were using interiors for they thought if they used that room 217 which was an actual like room that you can book mm-hmm. that attendance for that room would plummet so they asked them to use 237 which was a room that doesn't exist it was like a janitor's closet or something and they said okay just use 237 because we can't lose business on 237 it doesn't exist mm-hmm. and in turn what actually happened was 217 is now their most highly requested room to book mm-hmm. so you know opposite of what they thought people like spooky stuff man yeah they do the waiting on the stanley hotel which is where the, the shining is based on for 217 is apparently like four years Damn. So after Dick and all of them get settled and on their way, we enter the crux of the film, which is Danny, Wendy, and Jack just being in the Overlook Hotel and just kind of living their lives. You know, they go through the hedge maze. Danny rides his big wheel through the place. Jack is trying to write and can't write. The first real scene of tension happens was, again, a big departure from the book's version of Jack and Wendy is when Wendy checks on Jack's writing and he tells her to get the fuck out of there. Uh, the scene not where- Not respectful partner. Yeah, not respectful. So that's the one of the bigger differences because in the book, it feels like Wendy's sort of like Tab of the King where it's like, oh, I'll read your stuff and I'll edit it and I'll make it, you know, sound nicer where, mm-hmm. she, where Jack is just like, get away from me when I'm writing. And there's a big scene I read from my IMDb trivia facts that was in the script and filmed but was not put in there was Ooh, yeah, where Jack found the scrapbook in the boiler room full of the Overlook's deeds all the stuff that's happened mm-hmm. there, all, you know, like the gang members who, the dirty, the dirty deeds of the Overlook. And you can see in that scene, when Wendy comes in, the scrapbook open next to his typewriter, mm-hmm. but we never see him get that scrapbook, mm-hmm. which in the book, that's a huge thing. That's a huge deal. The the book, I mean, the scrapbook and impacts the direction of the novel. Whereas in the movie, it's just like, I don't know where he got that. Who cares? Mm-hmm. And Stanley Kubrick's writing partner, actually, she's really sad that that scene did not get in there. She thought it was crucial to the direction 
of the film. Mm-hmm. But Stanley Kubrick disagreed. As he's apt to do. Yep. It's, it's his way. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they made that major change from the book to the movie with the um, animal hedges. That's climactic in the book. But they couldn't think of a way to do it, which wouldn't look silly, which I'm sure they're right. So they axed that all together. Yes. In the book, they're topiary animals, which come to life. And in the movie, there's a hedge maze, which hedge maze is, is a really cool set piece. I will say, I listened to the uh, Boys and Ghouls podcast. I mentioned them before on this podcast. They had an idea, which I did think was really cool, where uh, Marshall, one of the two hosts, said, I'm sure if they went to Jim Henson's studio, he could have figured out a way to make topiary animals that moved mm-hmm. in a cool way, which I that would have been cool. It would have been. In the miniseries, they're CGI, and it's awful. It's oh, yeah. It's absolutely terrible. But CGI, pretty much, at least so far, it never ages well. No, especially mid-90s CGI. Ugh. Nope. It's bad. It's frightful stuff. Especially Even though a lot of the effects in Lord of the Rings hold up because it's miniatures yeah. and things like that. They're not using CGI. They use some CGI, but like most of like these practical effects, which are smarter. It's CGI is so unreliable. Like the effects in Jurassic Park look better than the effects in Jurassic World, which that makes no sense. But that's because they're mostly animatronics in Jurassic Park. It was like 60-40 animatronics to CGI, but the scenes that mm-hmm. included CGI are still better than Jurassic World, and that makes no sense. I think they were smarter about it, and they took more time. Yeah, and I also think that they had the CGI do less. Yes. Like, there's the scene in Jurassic World at the very end mm-hmm. where it's like a five-minute fight scene, which granted is the best scene in that movie by far. But yeah. they they didn't have a five-minute scene of straight CGI in Jurassic Park. They just came in for, for a burst and then left. Because yeah. which... Jurassic Park was a, mu- was a much better story. Mm-hmm. So they relied on the actual story rather than throwing special effects at you until the point you're, like, rolling your eyes. Jurassic Park has suspense. Jurassic World doesn't. It's Jurassic, a step barrage. What, what I will say about Jurassic World is it is the greatest sci-fi original movie of all time. That's how to describe Jurassic World. It's the best also the sci-fi highest budget, original. I would imagine. <laughs> also the highest budgeted sci-fi original movie. But it's literally, it's got all the, the trimmings. It's got, you know, the government wanting to use the monsters for, for, for battle. It's got, you know, the paper-thin romance, the, the so opposite characters. <laughs> and just monster death upon monster death for no reason yep. it's a sci-fi original movie it is anyway that's a different that's a different podcast episode i know i could rant about that too so <laughs> oh, <laughs> jurassic park's one it's of my like movies. the ending of that movie is the only reason why to watch it just don't even watch jurassic world guys just watch the end fight scene on youtube yeah it's great Same with, i mean this movie's a lot less regaled and a lot less recent so the movie constantine pretty mm-hmm. much garbage but the end is pretty dope and mm-hmm. their interpretation of the devil is one of the best devil interpretations i've ever seen to film yeah which is amazing peter stormare kills it peter Stormare is fantastic. Wouldn't, you wouldn't expect it from Constantine, this mm. supremely mediocre movie, to have the best devil. But honestly, I think it does. He, I think he's better than... I'd have to think hard to think of a better one. I think he's better than Al Pacino. Yeah. That, which I know, perhaps might be sacrilege but it's i think he's a better job or no oh, bedeviled sorry. elizabeth hurley is obviously yes, supreme, elizabeth hurley. i can't oh, everything i just said <laughs> oh man that was, that was one of the quickest uh redactions i've ever seen yeah <laughs> the best. and elizabeth also elizabeth hurley, hurley in that in the brendan uh, fraser vehicle <laughs> <laughs> oh what a crazy movie um so the shining I think. Shining. Um, the the hedge mage, I do think is uh, it's, it's really fun as a stand-in mm-hmm. for the topiary animals. And also, there's a lot more I don't know symbolism. I guess you can do with mm-hmm. a hedge maze. They had a smart uh, way of having Danny outsmart his dad in that too, with retracing yeah, footsteps. I really like that. It's it's one of those scenes where at first you're like, what is he doing? 
Mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh, I get it. He's making it look like his footsteps ran out, which is another scene yep. where I wonder how Danny Lloyd thought it was not a horror movie. He's running away from his father in a mm-hmm. in a hedge maze in the snow, and his dad runs past him like screaming with an axe in his hand, and he's like, okay, this is a family drama. Oh yep, this is just uh, this, this just happens every Christmas. <laughs> Oh, man. Anywho, room 237. Let's talk about that really quick, because 237 is, like, the room with the most activity in the book, for Mm -hmm. sure. And it's one of the main ones in the movie, too. We just see Danny, like, drive past it on his big wheel, like, two or three times with, like, and then suddenly the key is in there at one point. And then we see him go in, but we don't see what happens in there. And then we get Jack go in there for one of the all-time greatest boner-killing scenes of all time. Oh, yeah. The oh, doozy. Where, that's top That's top three, at least. Jack I Nicholson goes in. Stanley Kubrick's boner-killing scene. Like, how many boners does that man kill? I don't know. Pro- a lot with that scene. I don't know how many... I- I'm not that familiar with all of Kubrick's work, but I don't know how many other top-tier boner-killing scenes he has. When he walks into room 237 and there's a gorgeous woman in the bathtub who comes out, she's naked, and Jack decides to make out with her because that's what you do when you find a strange, a woman. A strange naked woman in a hotel where there's not supposed to be anyone else. Mm-hmm. And then she becomes a melty, decayed, older woman in a flash, and it's just... You can't see the face I just made, guys, listening to this podcast, but it was it was a it was a skeeved out face. Mm. It was just ugh. and she does some kind of like crazy cackle laugh too. Yeah, she just laughs until he's like locked the door and ran down the hallway. And then he goes to the apartment and Jack's like, and when he's like, Did you see anyone? He's like, No, didn't see anyone. He's crazy. I'm like, what? That's just that's the weirdest scene for me, I think, in the whole movie. That whole sequence of events. Because in the movie, I don't even feel like that person is like a specific ghost. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's like a trick of the room, whereas she's like a full character in the book. I feel like everything yeah. we're saying is just like every side of this, we're just going, well, in the book, well, in the book. In the book, but in the book. But in the book. I know. I'm a total butt in the book dick. Like always. Like I was the only one who finished it. Well, I made a few different groups go see it and like at the end yeah. they're like well, then i'm like well in the book this on the book that i said i had a conversation like that when i left you should read the book. it was literally like where someone's like oh and this happened and i'm like well it's weird cause, you know because in the book this happened i'm like trying to stop myself from being a by the book dick as you put it because to adapt the book like word for word it would take forever mm-hmm. there's a but i'll tell the- a quick i'll tell a quick story about that there's a silence movie that i saw at film school called greed the director wanted to make the book word for word. He ended up making it. Every time they he got a new cut, they would tell him, okay, you need to cut it back. You need to cut it back. You need to cut it back. And originally, it ended up being like 10 hours long. Mm-hmm. And it's not a very long book, if I remember correctly. It's only like 500 pages or so. But it was 10 hours. And then he cut it down to 8 hours. And he cut it down to 4 hours. And he cut it down to 2 hours. And finally, they went at 2 and a half hours. Like, okay, we can release this. And it's the most boring movie I've ever seen in my life. I could not physically imagine sitting through 10 hours of that movie. It's like all those people are like, I want to see the book exactly as it is. I'm like, I don't want to go to the movies for seven hours. No, I think adapting a novel into a movie is incredibly difficult, hmm. especially a novel that takes place mostly in someone's head. Yes. I think that more often than not, voiceovers don't work. I'm looking at you, Blade Runner. I know it's classic, but no. <laughs> Even like self-deprecating voiceovers, I cringe at too. Sometimes they're okay. I get easily irked by stuff like that. But it's like most novels, obviously, can be very interior. 
for mm-hmm. the characters. You're in their heads more than in their actions or more than, and, you know, you hear them talk, but you know how often right. someone talks and is thinking something different. So I think that's a huge challenge. And one book I think is better as a movie than as a book is Misery. Better movie Yes, than I book. think Misery. I love the book, but I think the movie is just absolutely classic. Yeah. Might be my favorite Stephen King adaptation. That's a solid, it's definitely in the running. And Kathy Bates's take on the Annie Wilkes character, it's a lot more interesting than mm-hmm. the character in the book. Because the character in the book, as soon as you're introduced to her, you can tell she's crazy. There's no ambiguity. The Kathy Bates character, it takes a little while. There's a little bit like gaslighting. Obviously, you know, because you're watching the movie that she's going to be crazy. But mm-hmm. you're kind of like, oh, am I taking this out of context? Is he yeah. being paranoid? Like, And he's a dick. So you're like a little on her side sometimes where you're like, oh, come on. Like she took you in and you're being really ungrateful. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, I think that interplay was really important. Oh, yeah. That's, that's such a tone. fantastic one of mm-hmm. my favorite Stephen King adaptations. That I feel like in Christine might be my two favorites. Christine's great too. But the, what mm-hmm. I was going to say is I feel like for that reason you mentioned about being in, in the head, I feel like The Shining might be harder to adapt than even It. Because it's mm-hmm. long. It has a lot happening. But It constantly has at least three or four characters on screen talking. Yeah. A lot of dialogue. Constantly doesn't. has the, the Losers Club talking to them. Whereas The Shining, you'll go full sections where it's just Jack Torrance saying, I need a drink, I need a drink, I need a drink, I need a drink. Mm-hmm. You don't really get that in the movie. You get the one scene where he's at the bar and he's like, I'd sell my soul for a, just a glass of beer. In the book, by that point, we've known how badly Jack needs a drink. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you can't get that across in a movie as well no. without someone to bounce off of or voice over. And those aren't as fun. No, that's what, again, another great thing about The Shining, the film, is a movie that can portray realistic is kind of a hard sell because Stanley Kubrick isn't necessarily realistic, but it's intentional. It's stylistic but like a quote-unquote realistic descent into madness mm-hmm. i think is very hard to capture and i think they do a pretty good job i mean it doesn't hurt that he's already kind of acting crazy to begin with right but a lot of the ways it's filmed i think it was a smart choice to make almost all the overtly supernatural elements happen to jack who is an unreliable narrator except for when the door is unlocked and he gets out of the pantry mm-hmm. you could argue that the ghosts are all in his head in that yeah. Danny did strangle himself. And then when Wendy sees in the book that, that weird guy in the dog suit, he's the gay lover of that man. I think it's kind of cool they don't go into that in the movie. So you just see some weird guy in a dog suit. Guy in a, and in a Wendy dog sees suit. it and it's like, what the fuck? But also that could easily be psychological too. So I think that they do a, a cool interplay of like, is this supernatural or is it really just like, or is he really going crazy? And are they coming apart at the seams? Which the answer I think is yes to both. Yes. I feel like in the movie, one of the big differences between the movie and the book Mm -hmm. is the book makes it very 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 clear that the hotel is using jack to get danny Mm -hmm. because danny's shining makes the people in the hotel stronger more physical i feel like Mm -hmm. and they feel like if they can kill danny they can get all of his shine Mm -hmm. and to such an extent where i feel like in the book if they had succeeded if jack had killed danny then by the Mm -hmm. time may rolled around and people were coming back to the hotel they would have come back to a hotel filled with people Mm mm-hmm seemingly to them it would have been like all these ghosts are now people again that's what it felt like to be reading the book whereas in the movie it feels like the hotel is directly targeting jack because it wants jack because jack was the caretaker mm-hmm. you've always been the caretaker 
I think that something similar in the book happens, but I feel like it's undercut by so much talk of we need Danny. In the book, Maybe he's we'll more of get... Yeah, there's even a in scene the movie, where they're like, the object. in the book, there's even a scene where after Wendy knocks out Jack and puts him in the cupboard, where they're like, huh, your wife is stronger than we thought. Maybe we should just use her to get to Danny. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no, no. You want me. You want me to do it because I'm going to be the one to do it. And they're like, I don't know. Maybe we can just get your wife to do it. So it's like, he's clearly just being used in the book. Whereas in the movie, he seems to be the object. No, I agree. And then I also think because in the movie, there's that uh, yeah, that ambiguity of like his picture is, is in that photo from like that mm-hmm. 1920s party. And like so the idea that is he reincarnated mm-hmm. or is now that he's dead, he in the picture. I mean, Stanley Kubrick's answered those questions, but he's notoriously known for like misleading, you know, trying to mess with people. So he said that, yes, like he's essentially like always been the caretaker yeah. and that he was in that picture. All right, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I like to like to subscribe to like the author is dead philosophy where it's like you can kind of draw your own conclusions based on what happens and what you yeah. like you know I don't the think shining i feel like the, should tell you what it is. <laughs> the shining i feel like is to a certain extent intentionally ambiguous yes. i think there's a lot a lot a lot of fan theories about the shining the movie uh-huh. And I've read through a bunch of them. I agree with not a lot of them, but there's a lot to be said about how a movie can survive, not by being given answers, but just given questions. Mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest thing going for The Shining, the movie, is just how ambiguous it is. Because one thing I think is so funny is there's a lot of questions, a lot of fan theories that you would easily be able to answer if you also just read the book. Yeah. Like a lot of them are like, oh, it's about how we treated Native Americans because there's that scene where uh, Jack is getting drinks from Lloyd and he says, you know, white man's burden and it's on an Indian burial ground and there's all this Mm -hmm. architecture of Native Americans. It's like, why does he say white man's burden? And it's like, because he says it in the book, guys. He just adapted that scene, like word for word. Same with the guy in the dog suit. I've read a lot of people like oh like what that was so random it was so weird like who was that and i'm like a cursory google search could tell you yes but that's again a direct pickup from the book and yeah, also that like... like a lot of those things don't need because it's like more it's atmospheric you yes. know there is an explanation but in order to get into it's not like oh wow you really need to know what the meaning of this is to get yeah. it it's like jack being a dick not really uh i mean he just kind of is yeah <laughs> that's why i think it's so funny it's like oh yeah what was the purpose of the dog person it was in the book so you adapt what's in the book yeah it's very clear that's what I think is so funny about The Shining that there was even a documentary called Room 237 which I have not seen but I've heard it's mm-hmm. insane or it's absolutely crazy Ooh, what's just okay. full of like all these crazy fan theories and like half of them disprove the other half or something it's just like calm down guys <laughs> like I said that scene with Lloyd which I think is one of the best scenes in the entire movie where he first meets Lloyd and the hotel is miraculously stored with alcohol mm-hmm. that scene is almost line for line out of the book Mm -hmm. and that's a big scene where people get all of their fan theories so it's like, what is he saying? Why aren't you asking Stephen King instead? Because he's yeah, the one He's probably Stevie. more at, he's probably more apt to talk than Kubrick was when he was around. Definitely. Um, Stephen King, I, I love him. He's, he's, he's great. And just like the fact that he's got just so incredibly talented and he's just built these very intricate worlds mm. and so, so many of them. Oh yeah. It's just it just really like blows your mind. Stephen King is absolutely fantastic. The biggest change, which of course Stephen King has said several times he's not a fan of Mm -hmm. is that it seems that Jack Torrance is crazy when he gets there as opposed to being driven crazy by alcohol and the spirits of the Overlook. 
and the biggest indicator by far is when Wendy finally gets to read Jack's manuscript, which is just ream after ream of all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, mm-hmm. which such a creepy scene, such a great reveal. It is. The music is incredible at that moment. But for that to make sense, that means the second we see Jack Torrance typing at all in the movie, he's already crazy. Yep. Which means he's crazy from like 30 minutes into the movie. Mm-hmm. Like that scene very early on where she he tells Wendy to get out of there. And whenever you hear me typing, that means I'm working. So you're breaking my concentration. He's crazy. He's just mm-hmm. typing all work and no play. Make sure I get a boy then probably. Yeah, you're probably right. Which, I mean, you're definitely right. I, and I yeah. like, and I also like that implication hmm. that he's been crazy all along. Because obviously, again, not again being a book dick, but it's a huge <laughs> departure from the book, but in a good way. Because it's not like because it, it's a reveal, but it's not like a he was dead all along reveal where you're like, wow, does that really make sense? And then you're like, actually, kind of doesn't make sense. This one's like, oh, that actually makes sense. <laughs> like, yeah, it's a it's a self contained plot twist where a lot of times I spoke about this with uh, Sean on an episode once where it's like most plot twists you go whoa that makes this make sense but wait a minute now this other stuff i'm supposed to believe doesn't make sense anymore Mm -hmm. Uh, this that's what you told me to believe is not true that wait now everything's kind of crumbling in on each on itself Mm -hmm. and not too long after we see that scene where he start first is typing we do see the scene where he's like looking at the top of his eyes and looking like absolutely crazy watching danny and wendy frolic in the snow so he's gone at that point yeah so it does make sense and one of the the craziest thing about that scene too is just looking at the pages Mm because those there's so many typos in there too and he really switches up the presentation (laughs) my favorite pages of that are the ones where it's not just the line over and over again where it's like Mm -hmm. formatted like paragraphs and like a little inside paragraph and dialogue paragraphs where Mm -hmm. it felt like he felt like he was writing a book but all he was writing was just the same phrase over and over again because apparently Kubrick was crazy you know Kubrick was crazy so he had a secretary actually type out all those pages it wasn't like photocopy or anything it was typed out so she messed up sometimes yeah so there were there seems where something should be capitalized and it's not or it's missing a letter because someone typed through like 500 pages of that honestly if someone paid me to do that I'd do it and then I'd be like I was in The Shining (laughs) Well, yeah, if Stanley Kubrick was like, type this out, you'll be in The Shining. I'd be like, okay, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. But right away, sir. It is funny to me that it's a, it's a movie about going crazy, and he probably drove at least two people crazy. Yeah. Shelley Duvall and that secretary. <laughs> I think he probably drove quite a few people crazy in his day. Probably. <laughs> Those, uh, whatever you call it, insufferable genius types. Which uh, that leads to another great scene where Jack basically reveals he's crazy to Wendy, where she has the bat, you know, the give me the bat scene. Mm-hmm. which is also fantastically done in the shinning the simpsons trios of horror skit mm-hmm. what do you got like darling light of my life i'm not gonna hurt you i'm just gonna bash your fucking brains in in the scene where he's um coming after wendy and he uh hacks down the bathroom door jack nicholson was a volunteer fireman so yeah, i read that so he, he hacked down the door like so fast they had to build a bigger better door so it take longer <laughs> Yeah, I heard they initially were just going to do like a fake one, a fake door. And he like chopped it down in like two strikes because he was a volunteer firefighter. So they're like, okay, so let's get a real door for him because he's too good, apparently. He's got the power. One thing I liked about Stanley Kubrick's craziness in that scene is, you know, he did a million takes of that. And I there's only a handful of shots where I can tell that the door was chopped down in a different way. Like the, there is one scene after he gets sliced with the knife 
where you see that the panel next to the one he said, here's Johnny in has also Mm -hmm. been chopped down, which never happened in the movie, Mm -hmm. which never happened before. But that's like the one time where I'm like, oh, it looks like that's a different take. Yeah, so he's pretty good at at keeping it pretty consistent. Continuity editing, for sure. I think a smart thing he does too is to lend the creepiness. They move things around, furniture and stuff like that, which is also good because in all that filming, you're going to mess things up probably Mm -hmm. and have to go back in post-production or be really careful when you're filming. So it's almost easier if you're mm. already intentionally moving things around because then right. if like a water glass moves or if something moves or a chair moves or whatever then oh it's the ghost yeah there's a few things on imdb where they're like here's a goof at one point this chair was uh, was there and then when they cut back it's not there that's a goof i'm like no it's probably intentional honestly yeah, I, would be, I would get that intentional uh one quick thing i do want to throw in more imdb trivia because that's always fun mm-hmm. um it's straight the actor Slim Pickens, who was in Doctor Strange Love, which is a great movie, great movie. He was going to play Halloran. That's what Kubrick wanted, which interesting. is interesting because Slim Pickens, I believe, is a white man, and that would have been something so he wanted him to play dick halloran mm-hmm. but slim pickens after being with him on dr strangelove wanted nothing to do with it he's like <laughs> i don't want to be in another kubrick movie yeah it sounds like it's hell on earth worth it but what is it not scatman crothers who did play dick halloran his next movie was a clint eastwood movie and he went to the ground and cried after one of the takes because clint eastwood is a one and done kind of guy so there was one scene where he did a take and clint eastwood's like okay we're done and scatman crothers was like seriously we're done i have to do it again after you know working with kubrick where he did something like 150 times or whatever he was just like oh my god this is so great i'm so happy this this movie did take this movie did take like a year to make apparently i was reading it was saying like most of the most of jack nicholson's takes were in the 20s so the takes they used i mean i think they did more than that yeah which is oh god but like most of the takes they chose were in the 20s so he'd be like so exhausted but also really amping it up you know to get it over with that would be that's like when he hit his like second wind i guess i would be Um, interested to see a movie like with different takes you know (laughs) yeah you could easily make probably a version of this movie that's much more subdued out of like the first handful of takes for all of them Mm -hmm. you could probably make a version of the shining that stephen king would love just out of the alternate takes the takes were right yeah that'd be kind of cool yeah that'd be great if someone found like the raw footage whatever and they're like we cut together like the most subdued jack takes and the Mm -hmm. most empowered wendy takes or whatever and they're like guess what we found a new version of the shining somehow it is interesting to think about all the stuff that ends up on the cutting room floor that no one really sees oh yeah apparently there was an alternate ending to the movie which would have made no sense at all where they're in the hospital after they've escaped the overlook and jack froze to death where they're like your husband's body is missing we can't find it it's like it's the most cliche hook for a sequel scene I've ever heard. It's like, how? he's He was outside in like 10 degree weather, snowing. He's clearly dead. Let's just move on. Yeah, he's frozen. He's dead. He's dead. Which maybe, I don't know, maybe the hotel absorbed him or something and now he's in the picture. I don't know. Maybe it's like Harry Potter rules where he's like now yeah. part of the picture. I don't know. These are questions that we just can't answer. Nope. Answers we'll never have. Nope. And unlike most crazy fans of The Shining, I'm okay with that I'm, yeah i'm totally fine with that some movies are ambiguous enough where like okay i just or at, there's a certain point where i hit and i'm like you're trying to be ambiguous so i'm going to turn my brain off a little bit and not worry about it totally agree because i like a little ambiguity i don't like i don't like when things are spoon fed to you 100 percent like, I recently mm-hmm. got into this show called Dark on Netflix. It's um, German. Yeah. And I watched the whole season. Like, 
you should pay really close attention first of all because it's not in english and yeah. second of all because they don't spoon feed you anything you just re- you kind of realize how oh wow we're so used to like being led to water and then like given a straw essentially yeah, pretty much and it's just like it's not very um genuine so i like it better there's a lot of foreign films like, that are like that where it's just like we're gonna show you some really creepy stuff and maybe it'll make sense mm-hmm. maybe like, it will maybe it won't who's to say who cares we'll find out somehow it's like okay <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. This is really good foreign films. One of the things we touched upon earlier, which I do want to talk about before we wrap up this episode, is Dick Halloran yeah. at the end. Because in the book, I think he is a much more vivid character. And I think... Yes. So, so and I think it's almost comical what they do to him. Mm-hmm. Because he's in Florida, just like kind of watching the news, which the Florida news randomly decides to talk about a Colorado blizzard. I don't think that would ever happen in real life. Right. <laughs> Unless they were getting like the snow of the millennium. Mm-hmm. If they were like, Colorado is buried under 28 feet of snow, then they might talk about it for five minutes. And uh, Danny reaches out with the shining. He's, you know, he calls out to Dick. Mm-hmm. So Dick, he gets on a plane right away. He rents a car. He drives through the awful Colorado snowy conditions. He gets a snow cat, drives up through unplowed streets covered in like 20 feet of snow, gets to the hotel, goes inside the hotel says hello and gets killed instantly by jack with an axe that was almost that was bordering on a slapstick death that was it was like a freaking cartoon yeah he spent like the last 18 hours of his life on a mission to get to this one place and he dies 12 seconds later and again with being not not in the book dick but it's not in the book and why the hell did they make it happen like that it's not satisfying on a narrative level it doesn't make sense it's just like useless I feel like it's one of those things where since they changed another big change from the book to the movie is that Jack Torrance doesn't use a mallet, a uh, croc- a roke mallet or croquet mallet, but it's just bigger. He uses an axe. In the book, in the miniseries, you can get cracked with a roke mallet and survive. Mm-hmm. You won't be in great shape. You can, like In the book, there's like broken bones and broken teeth, and they're all messed up afterwards, but you can't take an axe to the chest and or an axe almost anywhere and live. Yep. So it's like that change kind of almost like seems like it forced their hands. I feel like they could have just been more clever about it. Give him like a, an extended scene and maybe gets like chopped in the arm or something and he thinks he's dead, but he's not. I don't know. Or he knocks the axe out and he has to, and then he like knocks and then he gets up with something else that gives like Wendy time to run away and then he gets the axe to run after Wendy and like leaves that guy just with his ass beat. Yeah, it could have been like the mallet and he like broke the mallet on Dick Halloran. Yeah. And then I, he had to, like... I feel like they just took a really lazy route. They probably yeah. just didn't really want to deal. They wanted probably just wanted to focus on uh Danny and Wendy. Yeah, there's there's certain horror movies where it's like we really only know how to handle a handful of characters in this situation and you'll sometimes find a situation where there's like we can handle three characters but we have five in like there's 30 minutes left Mm -hmm. so we're gonna drop two really quick yep and that's what dick felt like dick coming into this movie is kind of throwing off the balance of what we got going on here Mm -hmm. so let's just acknowledge he showed up we got a tricycle going we don't want a quad right you want to hear this is what i think is the most nuts fact that i read because i thought it was absolutely insane so stanley kubrick's original treatment that he wrote like really quickly at when he realized he was going to be writing the shining mm-hmm. the original treatment that i read 
read about, they kill Jack Torrance, like Wendy and, and Dick Halloran mm-hmm. and uh, Danny. Like when Dick gets there, they kill him with like a knife or something. And then the hotel like instantly goes after Dick Halloran and like possesses him to kill Danny. And then they have to kill and escape Dick Halloran instead. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Which actually, that makes a little bit because in the book, the hotel does try to get Dick Halloran to do it after yeah. Jack's dead. Yeah, very quickly. But it's just like, here's he the thought. And he's like, and he's like, no, 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 we're out of here. Mm-hmm. But I do think that's such a crazy first draft of this story. It is to be like, all right, I think we're gonna kill our villain like two thirds way through the movie, and then add Dick Halloran as the actual villain. Now it's like, what? Mm-hmm. I'm glad they didn't do that, but I almost wish they did because at least then they would have done something with the Dick Halloran character. Yeah. We will end this on two separate questions. Okay. So the ending of the movie, after after Danny has outsmarted Jack in the hedge mage in a great scene where he retraces his steps and Jack goes nuts. He literally like runs past the empty steps and freezes to death, overlooking the hotel. But we get this weird scene after they escape where they zoom in on an old photograph dated July 4th, 1921 with Jack Torrance mm-hmm. smiling front and center. What is your interpretation of that picture? Was it always there? Did they like pass by like a million times while they were working there? Or did he, was he, is that Talk symbolic of the hotel absorbing Jack? I think those are both pretty um, valid interpretations. When I first saw it, I thought that the hotel had absorbed Jack. That's what was my thought. Though, to be honest, when I was a kid, I read a lot of Roald Dahl books, and one of them was mm-hmm. The Witches. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that one of the witches did was trap trap a little girl in a painting. And I saw The Shining when I was probably arguably too young. So mm-hmm. I thought that, but it could also be linked to what I had, what I had read in, in The Witches. But I also think it's a valid interpretation that, especially with the, like the repeating of the line, like, oh you were always the you've always been the yeah, caretaker you were always the caretaker exactly precisely very in good accent as well so i Thank think you, that, it's hard for me that's what same with um the book versus the movie it's hard for me to pick which one's my favorite because i think both make sense in a certain way but yeah, you better decide since that's the second question what you say i said you okay. better decide that's the second question <laughs> <laughs> wow look at me i got the shining wow. <laughs> I guess if I'm talking, I mean, and you can't really talk logical because it's a horror movie and it's a Kubrick movie, but yes. talking logically, if he's like a reincarnation or whatever, it's mm. only been like 60 years. So that doesn't seem all that likely. Right. I could see that happening over like a few hundred years, but like well, he's in his forties, definitely. Yeah. So what, 10, 15 years pass and then he gets reincarnated. Like, I, I don't know if um if that would stand up, but all of this is just completely um nebulous anyway. <laughs> You know what's funny? I was going to say I think it's always been there and I think he's it's a reincarnation kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But you saying that, that it's only been 60 years, mm-hmm. almost it might actually change my mind because I have, this is a, this is not a shining theory, it's not a horror theory. This is a very bizarre life theory that I'm not sure even I believe I just came up with it one day. Yeah, go for it. I, I thought it'd be interesting if reincarnation is real and just like every action is an equal and opposite reaction. I said, what if life and death are the same? Mm-hmm. So if you live 61 years you're going to be mm-hmm. dead for 61 years and then are reincarnated mm-hmm. like if they're equal and balancing acts between yeah i can see that i think that's that makes sense to me in my scientific brain or whatever mm-hmm. so that makes me think maybe he is being absorbed into the hotel and it wasn't always there for them to see at any time mm-hmm. that's what i'll say i guess and the second question, Megan, shining book or movie, what's your pick? I've been cheating with every question by giving two <laughs> answers. So this one, I'm not going to cheat and I'm going to go with movie. movie. And I will tell you why, because I love the book, but the 
movie is probably is one of my favorite movies mm-hmm. and the book is not is not even my top five favorite Stephen King books <laughs> so it like so I guess it's hard for me to actually pick because mm-hmm. I love them both but just in terms of my like passion interest I've watched the movie far more often than I've read the book mm-hmm. and I think the weirdness a lot of the weirdness that understandably Stephen King doesn't like because it kind of subverts his overall message in the movie which is like right. you know the common man being felled by you know alcoholism and then all the, and these other things I feel like the message that the Shining tells is one that is not often told it's like the whole like crazy man going crazier and also his wife in the book the wife again like pretty typical like blonde haired pretty mm-hmm. and again I like her but in the movie she's not really that likable and she mm-hmm. also she doesn't have like a kick-ass like Uma Thurman moment there's nothing like that she's more like kind of like a mousy desperate traumatized woman just trying right. to survive and I find there's something more engaging in that something like a little bit more relatable because it's like the things yeah. that are scary in the book in the movie wouldn't mm-hmm. be as scary if she was like I got this exactly it's like, even look if her marriage with Jack was better even he's the one who's going crazy but she's just as isolated yeah in every horror movie you do want a you know a strong character but you also do want a character who has realistic or you know is very scarable to actually like play up the scares you're trying to get mm-hmm. and the fewer characters you get the more you have to choose which one you want i agree with a lot of what you said i don't have the shining the book in my top five king mm-hmm. either like i told you before the show i think i actually might slightly prefer dr sleep to the shinings i think the mm-hmm. characters are so much more rich i mean there's there's more characters that are really in depth and there's more likable characters in dr sleep like i really yeah, got absolutely. into danny's great abra's great the doctor it almost feels like salem's lot to me like the group dynamic of dr sleep is similar to, to salem's lot which i really like too that just, just with a shining, yeah with just a shining like coat over top of it the book i don't think is my top one of my top favorites i mm-hmm. give the movie a slight edge but what's weird to me is what i don't like about the book i mean the movie is how different it is from the book mm-hmm. but the book's not one of my stephen king favorites so it's like a weird dichotomy I know, thing going it is, on here. well you know we keep talking and just saying like oh like it wasn't like that in the book well, in the book, like, the the book. book better but like when it comes down to it i mean doesn't necessarily right it's like up. well that's not like in the book but it was great in the movie well yeah but it wasn't like that in the book it's like it's like i'm talking out both sides of my mouth when i talk about the shining so i'm like it's like this is great but it's not what it's supposed to be but it's yeah. great but it's not what it's supposed to be so i'll give it's the movie so a different. slight edge for me they really are two separate things even though there are scenes from the movie that are just ripped out of the book characters mm-hmm. are obviously you know the same name same locations a lot of the same ghosts adversaries they come up against but they're just so different it's hard to just to directly compare the two I feel it like. is it, and whenever you start talking about one you start talking about the other right. and then comparisons are made but whether or not you make them like a positive or negative comparison but then when it comes down to it they're both just really excellent on their own it's standing. like i'm gonna make i'm gonna make a weird analogy it's like chocolate and peanut butter like a lot of times you think of one then you think of the other but you can't compare chocolate and peanut butter like how, how would you compare and contrast chocolate and peanut butter but you in your head you connect the two mm-hmm. it's like that i guess and the shining the movie is definitely chocolate for sure <laughs> it, it wins yeah I would agree. I'm glad we concur on that one. We're on the same. You know, I kind of really want to reread the The Shining, but again, the, the take that Stanley Kubrick took, and I am really um fascinated by how he completely subverted the expectation of like the oh you have a classically good looking married young couple, and you're gonna age them up, and you're gonna make them less attractive, and you're gonna make them less likable intentionally. And you're, gonna, and you're gonna take the emphasis off of the kid character that we ideally want to see succeed, and put it on the crazy 
crazy person who was trying to kill his family. Mm -hmm. It's a weird choice. There's so many different like what ifs. That's the most fascinating part to me, I guess. Mm -hmm. The Shining is thinking about, like we said earlier, what if Christopher Reeves was Jack Torrance? That's really interesting. It is. What if you would replace all the cuts Kubrick picked with other takes that were less subdued? That's interesting. It's like the movie itself is great, but it's just opened itself to all these possibilities that I don't feel the same way about the book where I'm like, oh, what if King did this? It's just like the book kind of is what it is and it's good, but I don't Mm -hmm. think it's King's best. No, I was reading a review for a Doctor Sleep that it showed how Stephen King's writing has improved a lot over the years. Yeah, which I mean, it's... I'd have to I'd have to read them side by side to say for sure. But the, uh, Stephen King, just as a person, has like grown and changed a lot, so it makes sense that his right. writing also evolved. Yeah, I did read them more or less side by side. I read them like one after another, and the biggest difference in his writing style, I feel like his character work in Doctor Sleep is a little bit better than The Shining. But I mm-hmm. feel like the big thing he lost along the way was the abject horror. Mm-hmm. he's not as big on a force of evil as opposed to like almost relatable villains villains with human qualities to them like the mm-hmm. true not in dr sleep they're kind of pathetic in some scenes where they're just they like, are absolutely they're, they're not that horrifying it's almost like the good guys are just beating up on the true not sometimes mm-hmm. and it's like that's relatable but it's also not as scary but it's also written i think better i feel like a lot of times like there's so much coincidence in fiction mm-hmm. where like oh i'm either at my strongest or building towards that and then coming up against an adversary that's of equal strength yeah. whereas this it's like the true knots heyday was mm-hmm. what it's been long past like the nomadic culture is, is diminished right and just the way things are now they can't survive the way they used to so they're already scrambling and they're already at a disadvantage yeah. which i kind of like because like how often in life you know when you come up against something are you really like equals right i will say i would like to see like a new book where it is Stephen King's current work on characters and prose and all this other stuff against some kind of abject horror, like a Pennywise I, or like a Pet Cemetery style. I'm hoping that he does a follow up to it. I know it's already been 27 years since the first time, but I mean, Pennywise is still alive. That's been established. Right. Pennywise lives. I would love if he did a follow up to that. You know That's what? Funny. I would love to see, and it would have to be a collaboration with his son, Joe Hill. So, Charlie Manx in Nosferatu, he mm-hmm. abducts kids who their parents are terrible to them who their parents mistreat them mm-hmm. and he brings them to christmas land mm-hmm. i would love to see an alternate universe take where charlie manx abducts danny torrance interesting. i love i think that would be so interesting because that is the situation what, does, where does he, what does he do to the kids he brings them to christmas land okay. and he he brings them in his 1928 rolls royce wraith gorgeous car but it's like in that world there's these things called inscapes which you can tap into a power but it costs some, something Mm-hmm. So there's a character who she can tell the future or she can tell stuff by going into a bag of scrabble tiles. But the more she does it, the worse her stutter gets. Mm-hmm. Vic McQueen, the main character, can find lost things by crossing a bridge in her mind, essentially. Mm-hmm. But it kind of damages her psyche, her, damages her mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie Manks, what he does is he can go, he can take his car to Christmas Land, a world of lovely imagination, but it takes away his negative emotions Mm -hmm. but since he's out of them he has to use kids to go to christmas land now so by the time they get to christmas land these kids have been drained of all like they're like almost like perpetually innocent but that's also a bad thing Mm -hmm. because innocent kids will rip the wings off a fly and then you know have no feelings he basically turns these kids into more or less vampires 
and he's essentially a vampire like sucking their emotions out their positive their negative emotions out of them oh okay interesting so it's like i would like to see him up against like a kid with powers that wasn't addressed in nosferatu Mm -hmm. and it can't be in the future because he's he's dead so we have to go in the past and have that crossover that would be so cool that would be interesting i would definitely recommend nosferatu though it's great okay no i'll read it so we've we've settled the argument guys book or movie it's the movie by a hair for me and a little bit more than a hair for megan so megan thank you for spending some of your valentine's day with me and you're very welcome the podcast (laughs) and for those listening, thank you for spending whatever day you're listening to this with with us. We greatly appreciate it. If you want to interact with the show, if you want to give me ideas for future episodes, email me at professionalhorror at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at professionalhorror or at, on Twitter at prohorrorcast. And until next time, stay scary, but keep it professional. Godspeed. Cool. Keep watching oh, the skies. <laughs>